Open your Bibles to page 662. Page 662, the Pew Bible there. Um, it, this Bible. If you're using the other one off the windowsill, it's a different page, by the way. Uh, but Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Matthew 9, 18 through 26. Uh, this is the story of Jesus raising a young girl from the dead. And there's a story within the story here of a woman who is healed along the way as he is going there to do that, this other woman becomes, gets healed. It begins like this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Let's stop there for just a second and notice that this guy is a synagogue leader or a synagogue ruler, typically a layman who had responsibilities to look after the building and order of worship and things like that, um, the, you know, so, sort of supervising things. And this is a guy who would have rubbed elbows with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, guys that had great disdain for Jesus and were always trying to kill him, if you remember the stories, and uh, ultimately succeeded, obviously we know. And so we can only imagine, if you can imagine what this guy is going against, you know, the, the boundaries that he was crossing for the sake of his daughter, right? And it continues, verse 20, just then a woman... So they're on their way, right? And just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. So verses 20 through 22 are sort of the, the story within the story, right? Um, and from that, that reference to the hemorrhage that has lasted for 12 years, we learn at least two things. One is that the woman has a condition that is obviously incurable or seemingly incurable. And then secondly, that the woman has a condition that Jewish law would have considered her unclean, would have made her unclean. That's from Leviticus chapter 15. Now, this doesn't deter her. I like this lady, right? She, she is bold, she's presumptuous in a sense, and she, she comes up behind Jesus and she touches the fringe of his cloak. Possibly that's the tassels prescribed in Numbers 15, which faithful Jews wore to sort of, uh, as a reminder to keep the law. And strikingly, Jesus accepts this woman's touch as a gesture of faith, and he declares this faith has made her well. He is, he is unconcerned about her unclean nature. And the word translated made well in verses 21 and 22 is the Greek word sozo, which elsewhere is used to speak of being saved. So in this little story within a story, Jesus' words to the, um, this woman embody the good news that our uncleanness, our sinfulness, does not keep us from him and that we are saved by faith in him. It's just a little gospel moment in there. And it continues, verse 23, when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and, the noisy, and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up and news of this spread all throughout the region. Now you may not be aware that uh, even the poorest of folks at that time 
were required to hire at least two flute players uh, at these morning ceremonies, right? And uh, at least one wailing woman. You have to get a woman with a good loud voice, maybe like Natalie, right? Just wailing, whoa, you know, like a wailing woman to perform these services. Now, they're professional mourners, and that might sound kind of strange to us, uh, and, and it may make you look differently now that you see videos of, of Jewish funerals, right? You know, with people wailing really loud down on the street and all that kind of stuff. But let's think of it this way. To make it a cultural norm and a practice to mourn well actually does speak of the deep respect of life uh, in the Jewish heart and mind. And I kind of like that. The Greek word used here for get up means to raise up, both in the sense of getting up out of bed, but also coming back to life. So this reawakening is arguably Jesus' most impressive miracle to date, and though he'll perform more revivications later. So Jesus right here demonstrates his authority in spectacular fashion in resurrecting this young girl. Now the ruler is left unnamed uh, in Matthew, but in Luke 8 and Mark chapter 5, we remember him as Jairus. And there are other resurrection stories in the scriptures. We know Luke recounts the story of Jesus raising a widow's son in Luke chapter 7. John's gospel remembers Lazarus being raised after four days in the grave, John chapter 11. And there are sort of a sprinkling of other resurrection incidents later in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 20. And it's this, the faith of this young girl's father that puts, you know, that, 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 uh, that he puts in in Jesus, which initiates this encounter, right? The fact that the girl is already dead signals this man's extraordinary sort of confidence in Jesus. He sees something in Jesus that is extremely unique and powerful, and and, and it speaks of his limitless power over, over even death, right? Some commentators have tried to make the argument over the years that the girl may not have been dead as the father had reported because Jesus says, go away, the girl's not dead, but she is sleeping. But the verb translated there uh, as sleep is a common euphemism for death, which really negates that possibility very quickly. Um, So people agree, and the father and Jesus are correct. This girl is dead. She is dead, right? And... And, but thanks to Jesus' power, there is still hope in this story, right? And, you know, we remember, as Paul wrote later so eloquently in his letter to the Romans, he said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor th- things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans chapter 8. And what, a, what an encouraging, like courage-building set of verses right there. We are people that have, have hope beyond death. That is an amazing thing when you really think about it. Jesus' power to resurrect this ruler's daughter announces God's limitless power over life in death right in that moment. And that's pretty cool. And when we believe that God has power over life and death, that faith produces courage. Faith in Christ produces courage, 
right? Not, we're not wimpy people. We're not victims. We are courageous people in Christ, not due to anything in ourselves, but because of who we serve, right? We are free to put our hope for the future in the hands of Christ because of stories like this. Now, in this depiction, Jesus sends the crowd away and he raises this little child to life on his own, alone, you know, in the, in the room. And that language, that story, recalls stories from Elijah and Elisha back in the Old Testament, which each revived a child in a similar fashion. And if, for instance, if you look at 1 Kings 17, Elijah's story goes like this. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, and he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God, right? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother, and he said, look, your son is alive. Now, any moms in this room know how, would you, how you would feel. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So what do stories like this do to us? Stories like this produce great faith in us that God is able to overcome death. They confirm the truth that we speak of the scriptures. You remember that the people were waiting for a Messiah at that time when Christ was walking the earth. They were waiting for a Messiah with this kind of power, right? But the Messiah was to be preceded by the return of Elijah. And Jesus proclaimed that John the Baptist to be the returned Elijah that was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40 verse 3 of one calling in the desert. That was a, a prophecy about Elijah, right? And, in, and, and if John the Baptist returned in the spirit of Elijah, then the Messiah could not be far behind. And they're starting to see this stuff, right? And as John the Baptist pointed out, you remember, that was Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So together, these stories of this woman being healed and this girl rising from the dead established Jesus' power uh, uh, to restore life that it's total, and number two, that faith with, which reaches out to Christ lets us receive that power. Remember Matthew 11, Jesus replied to John the Baptist's little bout of doubt uh, when he, that rhymes, bout of doubt, uh, when he uh, asked if Jesus was really the Messiah or not, should we wait for another, you know, are, are we wasting our time looking to you, right? And it says this, Jesus replied, go back and report to John, John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Do you believe it? That's the question for us. Do you believe it?
he was saying, the stories are true. I am here. Things are moving. The kingdom of God is among you. The Messiah is here and I am he. That's what he was saying. Now, does this mean that in every moment we will see these things happen? No, it doesn't. Death occurred all around Jesus as he walked the earth. He didn't go around raising them all, did he? These occurrences were unique and faith-building and a sign of the coming final fulfillment of the kingdom of God. We are in the historical moment of the already and the not yet. We are in the in-between time of the kingdom of coming in and the kingdom being finally established. Christ won the war just like the Allies did on D-Day, storming the beach at Normandy in World War II, June 6, 1944. But that war went on, didn't it? It continued, but that move was the war that broke the back of the enemy and won the war. But the battle still rages until the final return of Christ, like it did on V-Day when the war was finally ended, September 6, 1945. We remain in the in-between time of the second coming of Christ when the war will end in in finality and, and God's kingdom will reign fully on earth once more. Now think about that because that makes life much more bearable. Your life is this long in the sense of eternity, right? What I'm going through right now, you're not gonna remember 100 years from now. Right? Amen. Right? We, and, and it gives you a bigger, better perspective on life. D-Day for us was the cross and the resurrection of Christ at Easter. It really was. At his second coming, the dead in Christ will be raised to everlasting fellowship with God. And those who have chosen to choose not to follow Jesus will be cut off from all eternity. I don't say that Happily, I don't say that lightly, but it is the truth of the gospel. If we do not recognize our sin and our need of a a Savior, our need of salvation, and we don't give our lives to Christ, we will be cut off from, from life with God for eternity. Let that sink in. It's an important point, and it's a point that many people don't like to say these days. Many pastors avoid talking about those things. But if you don't realize that, you don't grasp the gospel, right? Right now, we have to acknowledge praiseworthy faith does not doubt God's ability to act in the world, right? But it doesn't presume to know how he will choose to act either. Let me say that twice. Praiseworthy faith doesn't doubt God's ability to act in the world as far as healings or resurrections or whatever, but it doesn't presume to know how God will act either. We as Christians, and especially as vineyard folks, we hold these things such as healings and the possibility of resurrections in humility with open palms. We really do. God is sovereign. We know that, and we can't presume to dictate how he will act in any given situation, but we act as if we know that he can. Therefore, 
mature faith isn't shaken when we pray for healing and it doesn't happen. Sometimes it does. It, but it holds on to the hope that it can and will. And especially at the end of days when we will all be repaired 100%. Late in 2019, much of the world came to know the name of Little Olive, I, don't, I can't pronounce her last name, Heilingenthal, maybe it is, who died unexpectedly at the age of two. And immediately her family and uh, the community surrounding them began to pray in earnest for her resurrection. Hashtag wake up Olive went viral on social media. There was a GoFundMe account opened up because they thought maybe there would be medical expenses that they would have to pay after she rose from the dead and all this kind of stuff. But sadly, her hoped for resurrection didn't happen. Little Olive stayed dead. While an immediate earthly resurrection never occurred for her, the sad event reinforced the reality of death and grief, even and especially for believers like ourselves. The hope for resurrection doesn't negate the promise of resurrection at the end for Olive, for her family, for all of us who put our faith in Christ. K.J. Ramsey uh, offers a helpful reflection on Olive's death in her article, There's No Shame When a Miracle Doesn't Happen. And she wrote, But the seedbed of our renewed hope is not simply declaring victory over death. It's finding that God weeps with us in sorrow. And we know that Jesus did that at times, right? We find a very different reaction to death, she writes, of children... Uh, in, in, in an episode of uh, The Crown. You remember that episode if you watched it, right? It detailed the events of a, a real event, if I'm not mistaken, of the Aberfan disaster, they called it, in 1966, where waterlogged waste from a coal mine above a town ga- you know, came loose and there was like 40,000 cubic meters of debris came down this nearby hill and it, in its path were homes and there was a junior school there where all these little children were gathered already, and in all, 116 children died and 28 adults were killed. And the episode, Aberfan, depicts one of several mass funerals that they held there for the victims and the haunting sounds of all the voices singing Charles Wesley's hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Prince Philip attends the funeral and later tells his uh, wife, Queen Elizabeth, about it. And he said it was extraordinary. The grief, the anger at the government, the coal board, and at God too. 81 children were buried today, he said. The rage in all the faces, behind all the eyes, they didn't smash things up. They didn't fight in the streets. Instead, they sang the whole community. They mourned. And in such a moment, we can say with certainty that Jesus wept alongside of them, that he does enter into our grief. They trusted, and so they sang of a time that Revelations talks about in chapter 21, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that'll be the finality of the kingdom, everlasting life in Christ. No more tears, no more pain, 
no more sickness, no more death. I can't even imagine that. Try to imagine it. You can't. The hope of resurrection is exactly that. It is a hope. And hope keeps us forward-facing, bolstered by these stories and the resurrection of Christ. Hope envisions an unknown future guarded by a well-known God. Hope envisions an unknown future guarded by a well-known God. Tish Harrison Warren envisions such hope as living with a destination, a telos, an ultimate object or aim in, hand, in mind, she says. Uh, she writes this, what if in, in traffic on I-35, wherever that is, we, we travelers forgot our telos? What if we all forsook our destinations, our commitment to where we are going, and we came to believe that this grimy in, interstate was all that there is? It would be a disaster. The future orientation of Christian time reminds us that we're people on the way. What if we sat here, let me interrupt her for a minute, what if we sat here and we thought, Ukraine, it's just the way it is. This is the way it'll always be. Pandemics, it's just the way it'll always be. Getting sick, just the way it'll always be. That's what she's saying. Whenever we find ourselves stuck be it in traffic or a job or even in grief, the remembering of God's tight and loving hold on our futures might just be the difference between hope and despair. And I'm here to preach this one thing to you today. We are people of hope and not of despair. Amen. Now, that all being true, that it doesn't always occur, healings don't always happen, resurrections don't always happen when we pray for them, we also do see modern accounts of healings and resurrections happen now. I was uh, in uh, Dushanbe, Tajikistan, and a girl was just deathly sick, laid out. She, couldn't, she was unconscious. She was 105-degree fever. She was just, and she had not moved in, I think, days. I forget exactly how long it was, but... We sat around her and we laid hands on her and we prayed and she popped up, started playing with the other kids like nothing was ever happened. It was an amazing thing. A missionary friend tells the story of an Iranian Muslim leader who went in for heart surgery, uh, but he died on the table. <laughs> and uh, the surgeons, knowing the great power and influence that this man held, were terrified at the prospect that he died under their care. Now, I know, having lived in a Muslim country, that some of these guys wield a great deal of power, and you don't want to be the guy that made the mistake, right? So they prayed their typical Muslim prayers over him to see if it, he would revive, and he didn't. And then one of them said, you know, I've heard if we pray in the name of Jesus that he may, he may come back to life. And they did. And his heart began beating right there on the table. And that story is sort of a famous missionary story that is thrown around quite a bit. Uh, from our Alpha class, there's another story from Graham Seed uh, of Sowing Seed Ministries. And you will see in a moment that Graham was 
what someone would call like a waste of life. He was in and out of prison. He was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He just, his mother deemed him as a son of Satan, <laughs> right? Now, whether Graham in this video just came out of a coma or he literally was resurrected from the dead is somewhat irrelevant. You can decide for yourself, healing or resurrection. But either would be an amazing miracle as the result of the power of Christ. So take a, take a look at, at this video. There you have it. I mean, good for Graham, not for me, right? A guy that lived that kind of life and then coma or dead, I don't care, he was going to be dead. They were going to pull the plug at least. Sure, he knows he's bad, right? But maybe you don't feel so bad. If you're sitting there thinking that, let me politely, I'll say it with a smile, you're being very prideful. We all are lost in our sin, every single one of us. We all need salvation. I don't care if you're drinking and drugging and beating people up or you're just going to work every day and doing what you do. We do need it. I would urge you, if you're sitting there thinking that you're, this is kind of silly, I don't need this. This is the God of the universe speaking to you, the God of all power over all things who wants freedom in, in your life. The real miracle, like he pointed out, wasn't that he woke up from either a coma or death. The real miracle was the change in that man's heart and what his life is about now. That's the kingdom of God come into our reality at this moment in the in-between time, right? So the question is, do we really believe that Jesus holds power over sin and sickness and death or not. I choose to believe, no matter how unnatural that might sound, I choose to believe that people rise from the dead. I choose to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that means something, right? Jesus' power to resurrect this ruler's daughter announces God's limitless power over life and death. And when we believe that God possesses power over life and death, faith produces courage, and we are then free to put our hope and all of our future in his hands. And that puts not only a steel rod up your back, but it puts a joyous spring in your step. There's great hope to be lived in, and I hope that you choose it today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are here and you are present. We thank you that you bled and died on that cross. I know that sounds strange to say, but I thank you that my God was willing to come and do that, but that you knew and you told us that three days later you would rise from the dead, and we're going to celebrate that in a few weeks. And we pray, Father God, that this Easter season would open up that doorway for many, many people to come into that new relationship with you like Graham did. Come and break through, break through in people's lives, break through in our life. Let us not 
live the Christian life that is just mundane and boring. Let us choose to walk with you in power and pursue healing, pursue life in you, pursue newness and change and transformation. We thank you for that, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to, I've had this up here for a few weeks, and I keep forgetting to read it to you, but uh, it's our friend from Ananias' house, John Samara. He was, um, sorry, uh, he was, um, he started Ananias' house. We, we support them in the Middle East. I'm not going to say the exact country right now, uh, but John, uh, his father is a pastor in, in a certain Muslim country, and he said, uh, one, he said, one morning after my death, so they were all in the car together as a family, right? And they had to go along this highway that was controlled by radicals that would just shoot into the cars to kill Christians. And one morning after my dad spent his time with the Lord, he woke, up, woke us up and we began our journey. <laughs> Think about being a mom or dad and putting your kid in that car and making that drive, right? And as we approached the first checkpoint, so they would have to go through checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint of these Muslim Islamic extremists, right? And my heart was pounding, he said. The soldier asked my dad for our ID, IDs with an AK-47 in his face. Ugh. And as we were collecting our IDs, my dad looked into the soldier's eyes. This is the boldness that we need. Across the barrel of that gun and said, I want to share with you the best gift the world has ever known. And as he began to share the gospel, he leaned towards my mom's side and he grabbed a Bible from a large bag and he handed it to the soldier, but my dad would not let go of the Bible until the soldier made the promise that he would read the word of God. At every checkpoint, the first words he spoke, I want to share with you uh, the best gift the world has ever known. This guy is still there doing that. I've met him. I was over, I, I keep wanting the same thing. I was over there in a city and we met with a, a whole bunch of pastors and he was, uh, he was one of them. Amazing, amazing guy. That's the kind of boldness we need in the in-between time because missions will end, but worship will never end. This is the eternity that we're talking about. So we've been called to a purpose, to go and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. And these people are doing it, and that's wonderful. So that's a challenge to you this morning.